I don't know, any of you guys excited about worshiping King Jesus this morning? Was that not encouraging? Man. Tell you what, praise God for Reggie and the team and the way they lead us to God's throne room. I pray you were encouraged. I pray you were super encouraged because I'm about to come in and tick you all off. Y'all felt real good. Now I'm about to mess it all up for you because we're going to be talking about Jesus and I plan on saying some things that are pretty uncomfortable. Uh, but just know if there's a slap in the face, it, it first hit my face. God slapped me and then said, bring it back. So just don't get mad at me when I talk about what I'm going to talk about. Because we're going to go on our sermon series. We're going to dig in more to the, the character of Jesus. We launched last week. And if you remember last week, we just talked about the big picture, the, the, the way Jesus reframed absolutely everything and the way he engaged with the world and talked about how he was completely counterintuitive. If you remember, I talked about the illustration of a rip current and how your gut may tell you to swim toward shore, but you'll die if you do that. Jesus says, I know this doesn't make sense, but I want you to swim a different direction. may not look like it's getting you closer. You're just going to have to trust me. My ways are counterintuitive, but you're going to have to do what I tell you to do. Same thing I try to teach my kids every time we go to the beach. You've got to swim in a different direction if you want to make it back. So today, we're going to begin to look at 12 characteristics of Jesus that are utterly counterintuitive. Not a single one of them makes sense on its own. Now, before I jump into them, though, I want to make sure you know where they came from. So about eight and a half years ago, we took our first lead team fasting retreat. Went up to, to Colorado, into the mountains, and, and prayed and sought the Lord. And we read all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in 36 hours. And I don't know if you've ever read them that quickly. Maybe you're doing the read through the Bible, the Gospels, in 90-day plan right now. And, and you'll get to see all the stories, but it's different when you read them all at once because you begin to see patterns emerge in the character of Jesus. Well, we did it again this past summer. We went back. The, the lead team has changed a lot over the last eight and a half years. And so we went and reread all four Gospels in about a 36-hour period. And again, these characteristics, these patterns of Jesus begin to emerge. And so we wanted to share with you our discoveries and what we've learned to call us all to live a bit more like Jesus. So I would really love it. If, even if you're not normally a note-taking kind of person, for you to write down each one of these. I, I, want the, I want you to have all 12 of these characteristics written somewhere. So if you want it, it'll be on the screen in a moment. You can take a picture of it. You can write it on an offering envelope. Give a different one later, but, you know, like one that you want to keep with you that has your the statement on there or whatever you want to do. If you have a journal, write it down. But we're going to begin with the first one. I chose this one specifically because it kind of encompasses all of them. It, it's an umbrella that informs all of them. Here's the very first characteristic that we saw as we read the Gospels. Jesus leveraged everything for eternity. That's what I want you to write down. Jesus leveraged absolutely everything in his life for the sake of future eternity. Then wasted on the present, he leveraged everything for eternity. You're going to see this characteristic in Jesus unfold as we go through it. But it's one of the first things that we notice how eternity-minded he was. Every decision he made. Every sermon he preached, every journey he took, every sacrifice he made, every miracle he performed, he did every single one of them with eternity in mind. He leveraged everything for eternity, and he turns around and calls his disciples to do the exact same thing. We're, we're going to just jump right into the passage of Scripture in, in Matthew. So if you have your Bible, open up to the Gospel of Matthew. Now listen, if you're, if you're watching online, I know there are many of you who are normally part of the church and maybe you're brand new, and this is your way of, of tuning in to hear what we have to say. I'm grateful for it. I also know here in the room, every Sunday, we have people who are brand new to the faith. So I don't want to take anything for granted. I'm going to make sure I explain to you exactly where we are in the Bible. So you have an Old Testament. That's the larger portion of the Bible. That's the first half of it. Then you have the New Testament, the second half of it. 
and that's a smaller portion of it. And the first four books of the New Testament are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if you read them through, you're going to find out they're very repetitive because they're the exact same story told from a different vantage point. The birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, for the next 12 weeks, we're going to be bouncing around these four gospel books because they give us all the information about Jesus that we have, and we're going to look deeply into them. We're going to start this morning with the first one, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And it's going to read a few quick verses where he tells us what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of eternity is all about and how we're supposed to respond to it. Listen to the magnitude of these statements, these stories. Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, two quick stories that he's given us here that that carry the same basic idea. He's trying to help us see the kingdom, the eternal kingdom and its value, saying it's worth giving up absolutely everything in this life in order to gain. That's the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom. Now, anytime Jesus tells a parable, he was was a master storyteller. The details of the story have a lot of value and meaning. So I want to make sure that we dig into them so you see what he's teaching us. Very first one, it says there was a guy and he's walking through a field and he discovers treasure, a buried treasure. This is not a pirate story, all right? This is, this is actually something really common in the ancient world. We do this all the time. We read the Bible with modern eyes and forget that it was written in an ancient context. So we've got to go back for a bit and think about what it was like then. There are historians that tell us that all over Israel, it was a veritable minefield of treasure coves because they didn't have banks back then that they could put their money in. If they had a family inheritance, a savings, they didn't have a vault Homes were easily broken into, so here's what they do. They would do. They would get a, a vase that was made of clay, and they would put. Their, usually, it was in the form of coins, and they would put their coins in there. And it was the gold and silver and all copper that they had. And they would put a stopper on it, and they would dig a hole in their their territory they had. They would bury it, cover it back up, and then there would be one person who was the head of the household, and he would know where to find the treasure. And those who would inherit it would also know. And especially if they knew like an enemy was invading, coming into their land, then they would take all their valuables because they knew their homes would be ransacked and they would go bury them. Sometimes even clothing and other things like that, they would put them in there and they would bury them. And if somebody was going to be leaving for a long time, leaving their their home empty, they didn't have like all these locks and stuff on the doors, their home would be broken into so they would go bury their treasures. This was very common for them. Now, what would happen from time to time is that somebody would leave, go on a journey, and die in the foreign field, and so would all the inheritors, and so that buried treasure now became nobody's, or anybody's, really. Or maybe the army came through of a, of a foreign nation and, and kills the majority of the people in that town, then there's all these buried treasures all over the place that now don't belong to anybody. Well, this is apparently what's going on. Here's a guy who's walking through a field, and he just he basically just trips over something and looks down and begins to see probably a little shard of, of, a, of a pot, of a vase made of clay, And so he digs it out and realizes he's just stumbled upon a buried treasure. Now, it didn't belong to the owner of the field because the present owner of the field had no clue it was there. Otherwise, he never would have sold the field and left the treasure in it. He would have taken the treasure out. So that meant the treasure didn't belong to anybody. And this guy finds it, and he knows it could be his. But it would be stealing if he just took the treasure for himself. So what does he do? He buys the field. He's not at any obligation to tell the present owner of the field the treasure's there because it didn't belong to him. So he could just go sell everything that he had and in great joy buy the field because he knows what's inside that. 
something worth so much more. And he's saying, this is the kingdom of God. It's something that's worth giving up everything for and with joy realizing you've got gain, not loss. Then he gives the second one, the, the pearl, the, the merchant of fine pearls. And it says this guy was actually on the hunt looking for pearls. Now, now what, what a merchant would do back then is they would travel over to the coastlines and, and they would start to, to spend time with the divers out there to find the pearls that they've discovered. And they would buy these pearls at cost and then they would clean them up and then they would set them in jewelry and they would go to the wealthy cities and they would sell them for a profit. And that merchant would live off the profit between what he paid for it and what he was able to sell it for. Now, the reason why he was searching for fine pearls is the finer quality of the pearl, the more profit you would make. So imagine this merchant. Now, he's, he's bought all kinds of pearls because when you go to the coastline, you've got to get as much as you possibly can before you go back to the big city like Jerusalem to go sell it. So he's got a little satchel filled with pearls. And then he happens upon a diver who pulls out the, the most exquisite pearl he has ever seen in his life. And immediately he knows, oh my goodness, th this thing, this thing will make me a fortune. But the only way he could buy it is if he sells everything that he has, even all the other pearls that he's collected. But with his joy, he goes and sells it all so that he can get the pearl of great value because he knows what a treasure it is. He's willing to give up some really good things because he wanted something that was spectacular. That was great. And he says, this is the kingdom of God. I may call you from time to time to give up some pretty good things, but trust me, I got something great for you. It's going to be worth it. And so what Jesus is telling us in these two stories is that's the eternal kingdom. It is worth giving up absolutely everything for because you win. You win that investment every single time. And Jesus says, leverage everything for eternity. Now there's a little nugget in here that I didn't didn't see. I've read this, these stories multiple times until I was studying it. And it was the different ways they came upon the treasure. If you notice, there were two different ones. The, the, the merchant, it says, was actually searching for pearls. He's looking for pearls of great value. And, and this is kind of indicative of a person who's looking for the kingdom of God. Now, there may be some of you in this room who are here because you're looking for something greater than what you've experienced in this life. There may be some of you tuning in right now and you want to know about this Jesus guy because you just know there's something more to this life than just waking up every day and going to sleep at the end of the day and eating and drinking. You know there's more to it. And so you're searching for something more. That's like the merchant who was searching for fine pearls. But there was also the other guy. He wasn't searching for the treasure. He's just walking through a field and, and looks down and there it is. And that, that's referring to some of you in this room who you're here only because grandma dragged you here. You're not really, you're, you're in the student ministry because mom and dad said you don't get lunch unless you go to church with me. You don't want to be here. Maybe you're watching online right now because you went to grandma's house and she's making lunch. She said, you're going to sit with me and watch this. You're going to put up with this preacher before you get your lunch. And that's why you're tuning in right now. And not that you desire, you're not seeking anything. But what Jesus is teaching us is it doesn't matter if you are seeking the kingdom of God or you just stumble upon the kingdom of God. All that matters is you see the value of the kingdom of God, that it is worth wagering everything on, leveraging everything you have in order to gain it. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. But this is where it starts to get a little messy. Because let me go ahead and tell you, I'm going to shoot straight with you. You and I stink at leveraging everything for eternity. We are hardwired to leverage everything for the now. But this is the way we're designed 
This is the way culture shapes us. This is the way we speak to each other. This is the way we feel. Remember I talked about that whole gut intuition to swim toward the shore when you're caught in a rip current? Every bit of our intuition is to get for the now. Carpe diem, seize the day. Who knows how long we have? We've got to make the most of this little life. You have been told your whole life, get all that you can out of this short life. And here comes Jesus, and he says, give away all that you can in this short life. And it just doesn't even make sense. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, time out, time out real quick here. I'm not going to ask you to show your hands. But how many of you really believe that? Why don't you ask a seven-year-old if they believe that sometime? It's better to give than to receive. Nah, you're crazy. <laughs> it's better to get than to give away. I like Christmas when I get toys, not after Christmas when I have to give away my old toys. I don't like it. I don't like parting with stuff. A seven-year-old will tell you it's, it's more blessed to receive than to give. And let me tell you what a seven-year-old will tell you. A seven-year-old will tell you what you really believe, but you're way too smart to say out in public. We all innately struggle with that because it feels better to receive than to give away. To give away feels like a loss. Why in the world would Jesus say it is more blessed to, to give than to receive? Well, because he knew we are so short-sighted in our investment portfolio that we have, the way that we view the returns on what we do. We look at it only for this life. We struggle immensely with it, and therefore we struggle to give away. In fact, Jesus is about to tell us a parable. We're going we're gonna to switch Gospels. We're going to go to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to spend most of our time in Luke. We're going to be in chapter 12, so it's just a couple books later. You were in Matthew, Mark, then Luke, chapter 12. And Jesus is about to tell a parable. This is where it starts to get a little bit face-slapping. This is where he tells us a parable about the stupidity of humanity, our natural wiring, the way that we are. You're going to hear God himself call a person a fool. And anytime God calls somebody a fool, you better be paying attention. Listen to what he says. Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. It says, and, and he said to them, talking about Jesus, Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life, <coughs> excuse me, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now stop there. I don't think that message was received any better from the original audience than it is from us. Jesus is telling a hard truth here about the stupidity of the natural human inclination to build up treasure for now. Now, to understand it, you've got to really look at the details of the story. So it says there was a rich guy and his harvest was plentiful. Now, let me go ahead and, and tell you what that's saying. That's saying this dude didn't need anything. He was already rich at the beginning of the story. It's not like he was struggling to make ends meet and this was the way that he could provide for his family and do good. No, the dude was already filthy rich, already had barns, and they were already filled to capacity. And then his harvest is abundant. And it says when his abundant harvest hits, the guy says, okay, man, my land's produced plentifully. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. It never once crossed his mind that he could give it away to those who were hungry around him. Never even crossed his mind. You know, back then, there were people who literally starved to death all over these tiny villages in the land of Israel. 
And here was this rich guy, and he's got grain, the very thing they need to live, and there are all these hungry people, and he's already so wealthy, and it never even crosses his mind. I could save hundreds of people's lives just by giving away the abundance that God has obviously provided for me because it came from the crop, not from me. It doesn't even cross his mind to be generous and to store up treasure for heaven. You know, he could have, if he didn't want to give it away, he could have gone to the market immediately and sold every bit of that extra grain, and maybe he could have used a portion of that to build a synagogue in his little village or, or to build a school for the, the children in his village. Do something good. Get some kind of treasure stored up for heaven. Doesn't even cross his mind. He's got this conundrum. Oh, what am I going to do? i got to find a place to keep all this stuff because it's mine, mine, mine. You just see the selfish nature of this guy. And so what does he do? He tears down his barns and he builds bigger ones so he can store all his crops. Now listen, I know, I know the majority of you who are listening to this, you're, you're not farmers. So you, you understand the story, but you don't feel it. But really, what he's talking about right here is the basic, if you were to put it in modern context, the basic idea of expanding your investment portfolio. That's what he's talking about. I, I want my money to make some money. I, I want to I leverage what I have so I can get some more. Because it was an investment principle. Now, he's having to spend some money. He's tearing down his barn so he can build bigger ones. Why? Because he'll get a profit in the end. He'll get ahead. Now, i, I got to be honest with you here. If, if this wasn't written in the Bible with Jesus telling us it's bad, there's a slight chance that we might think this was good. Because if this sounds like everybody's retirement plan. I mean, listen to what he says. He says, I, I want to store up so I have enough for later so that I can relax Eat, drink, and be merry. That's our, invest, that's our retirement plan right there. We're, we're trying to save now so there will come a moment when we can retire, preferably early, and then we can travel a bit more. We can relax. We can go see the kids and grandkids. We can, we can take it easy. We can eat, drink, and be merry. He's talking about a retirement plan. Now, I, I, Again, I think if we were to read this in like a business book, Without Jesus giving us commentary, we'd go, that dude is brilliant. Man, he knew exactly what to do. He'd invest a little bit here, look at it, multiply, wow. And we might try to imitate that guy if it weren't for God going, you fool. Why in the world would you invest in this life when your life's going to be demanded of you? That very night, his life was called from him, and therefore he was a fool. You know, it made me think, I'm sure many of you heard in the news about the passing of Bob Saget. You know, our family, we, we watched Full House with our kids, so they, they love that show, and he was the dad in, in Full House, and America's Funniest Home Videos was a host for a long time. And maybe you saw on social media uh, the passing around the tweet that he gave just a little bit before he passed. But he put out a tweet the night before, it was like three something in the morning, going, man, I'm so excited to be back on the road again, being able to perform again in front of people. I cannot wait for this tour. Within 12 hours, he was dead. And it just reminded me, we don't know when our day will come. And the fool is the one who says, I'm building up everything for this world when we may not even have tomorrow. And Jesus says, only the fool would do that. We have this strategy where we invest in right now and we don't recognize that we are investing our life savings in a wisp of smoke. You do realize treasure in this world is a disappearing act, don't you? We don't take it with us. It, it, it would be a whole lot like us seeing our dream house. Like we've, we've always had this, this one house with a white picket fence and the front porch, this gorgeous house we've always wanted. And we see it and we're ready to buy it. We've been saving and saving and saving. We can afford it. 
And then we get the inspection done and we look inside and there's black mold all over it. And the inspector comes back and says, this house is going to have to be condemned. It, it won't last any longer than a month. And you go, I just don't care. This is the house I've always wanted. I'm buying it anyway. And you buy it and you move in. You set everything up just for a, a month later to have to tear the whole house down. What would somebody say if they saw somebody buy a house they knew had black mold, they knew it was going to have to be destroyed? They would say, you fool. Why would you do that? And this is exactly what Jesus is telling us. When we invest in this life, when we, when we leverage everything for more in this life, we are buying our dream house with walls covered with black mold. It makes no sense whatsoever. And Jesus is calling out the inclination to swim this way, saying, trust me, people, there's a different direction to swim. And in verses 22 down to 32, he tells us that different direction to swim. Now, you'll notice, if you were to read the whole passage, it says, and he says to his disciples, so before he's talking to the crowd of people who are surrounding him, who many of whom aren't believers, and then he turns to his disciples and says, don't be fools like them. I, I got something better for you. So let's listen to the better. It's a passage many of you are familiar with. Keep on reading in verse 22. It says, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravings. They neither, they neither sow nor reap. They, neither, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, but tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now stop there for a moment. So in here, Jesus tells us in this familiar passage what our real problem is. And our real problem is we live in fear. We have anxiety. We're anxious about tomorrow. We're anxious about what comes. He says, oh, you of little faith. That's our problem. We are, we are operating with little faith, thinking if I don't care for myself, then God won't do it. And I'll be sunk. I'll be up a creek. So i got to make sure I'm taken care of. And so we store and store and store and store instead of giving and giving and giving and giving. Because we're afraid God just might not come through for us. Oh, you of little faith, he says. Now listen, I know our issue isn't really about food and clothing. Because the vast majority of you, listen to me right now, you, you probably have never gone a long period of time unless you were fasting without food. Now, maybe you didn't have the kind of food you wanted or the quantity of food you wanted, but you had some kind of food you could get. And maybe you didn't have the threads you wanted, the kind of shoes you wanted, the clothes you might want. Maybe they're a little threadbare, a little old, but you got, you got clothes on your back. We got incredible ministries like Mission Arlington in the city. They can make sure that we have the basic necessities met. So we have those things met. So we, we don't, we're not anxious over that. But that doesn't mean we don't live with anxiety. That means we don't live with constant fear about what's going to come. It just looks different. So I, I want to show you an example of what it looks like in my own life. An area where I don't yet have resolved, but it looks like living by faith and saying I'm investing in eternity instead of the present. 
So I've shared this from time to time with a few of you. Uh, you might be familiar with some of the part of the story, but about 14 years ago, God called my wife and I to try to live in radical generosity. And, and at the time, we, we were a one-income family, and the income was mine. We had two kids, and we were making the equivalent of a, an elementary school teacher salary. Now, I know there's a lot of elementary school teachers in the room. You, you know how hard it would be to live with four people off just that one salary because we don't pay our teachers enough. So it was, that's what I was making, and it was hard to, just to make ends meet when the Lord says, I want to challenge you to try to live off half your income and leverage the other half toward kingdom causes. And I had the moment where it was one of those say what moments to God. Like, what? God, I, I, we're not even, we're not putting savings aside. We're not making it right now. I can barely get the tithe, God. How, how do you want me to move to this level of generosity? And so we prayed about it and prayed about it, and God wouldn't let us off the hook. But he gave us a strategy, and here was our strategy. Every time I got a raise at work, then I would try to not raise my standard of living unless it was absolutely necessary, and then try to give more away until we could move our percentage to where we were living off less and giving more away. And so we, over the years, have been moving toward that. But early on, I knew there would be a problem, and it has proven to be the case. I knew because of the plan God had set out for us, we were never going to be able to save for our children's college education. I brought this up before the Lord. I said, God, I see a glaring hole in your strategy here. I have six kids now. That's a lot of schooling. That's a lot of money. And I'm not being wise. I can put money aside and that money can make money and they can be ready. If I get in early, then they'll be ready for their college education. God, it makes sense for me to do it. I want to set them up well. I want them to be taken care of. And God said, I want you to seek first the kingdom of God and let me take care of all these additional things. So I want you to leverage it right now for eternity and let me handle it when they get to be in college. Now that was hard, but college was a long way off 14 years ago. Let me tell you my new circumstance. I've got a senior right now in high school, and she is exceptionally intelligent, and she's looking at some really expensive schools. And let me tell you what I don't have. I don't have a savings account for her college education. And I, I got to be honest with you, I don't yet know how this is going to be resolved. And, and there's a side where maybe some of you are listening to me going, you fool, you just messed up your kids. You, you, you just got a little too radical, Jason. And you may be right, unless God really did call me to it. I don't yet know how it's going to work out. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, my wife and I prayed, and God said, I want you to leverage it now, and let me take care of your kids later. And so here I stand, trembling, saying, God, what are you going to do? Got about six months, God. What are you going to do? I don't yet know. But I know God said, leverage everything for eternity and trust me for the present. Listen, if there aren't some things in our life that scare us, if there aren't some things in our life that the people around us go, you fool, what are you doing? Then we're probably not living lives of faith. There have to be moments when we say, I feel terribly uncomfortable with this, God, but you're telling me to leverage this for eternity, so right now, God, I give it up and I trust you. Oh, please show up. God is saying that's what it means to leverage everything for eternity. Now listen, i, I got to be really cautious here because I know that people can take what I'm saying and just contort it. I'm not saying, please hear me say this, I am not saying that if you save up for your children's college that somehow you're walking in sin. I'm not saying that if you have a retirement plan, you're walking in sin. I'm not saying if you have a savings account for 
incidentals and rainy day and all that, well, you're living in sin. Please hear, I'm not saying that. Let me tell you what I am saying. I am saying you must live with the idea that that, the possessions you have belong to God, not to you. Now, they may sit in a bank account with your name on it, but they still belong to him. And you must ask God, what would you have me do with this money of yours? What would you have me do with these possessions of yours? Because I have a feeling God will call many of you to save for your children's college education, and that's obedience. But it's disobedience for me when he calls me to something else. I have a feeling God will call many of you to save for retirement. We save for retirement because God told us to. But God may call you not to. And to be crazy enough to say, God, I'm not saving up for retirement because I may not retire. You may want me to work till the day I die and give everything else away right now. The question isn't, do we all do the same thing? The question is, are we asking God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? How can I leverage this for eternal things and not temporary things? We should live out what verses 33 and 34 tell us. I want to go back. We're going to finish up the Luke 12 passage right here in verse 33. Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I want to take Jesus' words at face value and, and stop trying to like mess with it to make it what you want it to say. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. In other words, give up what you could have for yourself to give away to somebody who can't give anything back to you. Be radical in your generosity. Why? Because you're storing up treasure in heaven that you will never lose. It is an investment principle that will always pay eternal dividends. Wise is the one who does so. I can't help but think about Jim Elliott. Many of you have heard of him. He was a missionary who took the gospel to a tribe that killed him for it. And, and just a little bit before he gave up his life, he, he gave one of the greatest quotes. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That right there, that's what Jesus is talking about. You are no fool to give up in this life because you're not going to keep it to gain what you will never lose. That is a winning investment strategy. Try it. Leverage everything for eternity. And let me, tell you, let me be clear here. Jesus is not just talking about money. That's way too easy of a thing to leave it with money. Jesus is talking about all of life. He's saying, look at how you spend your time. Are you spending it on eternal things or on your own things? Are you spending it to get ahead in this life? Or are you paying it toward heaven, investing in things that maybe there's no return? What about, what about your skills and abilities? Are you leveraging them? What if you're a teacher, but you're not teaching anybody kingdom values? What if you're a businessman, you're making money, but you're not leveraging it toward the cause of Christ? What if you're a leader, but you're not leading in the church? What if you have the gift of hospitality, but you're not inviting the lost into your home to show them the good news of the gospel? God has given you all these abilities, and are you leveraging for eternal things or for temporary earthly things? I think there are some of you, God has called to do some hard things, and you may be looking at things wrong. God has called some of you to bring some hard children into your home. And, and, and it's, it's getting difficult, and you beat your head against the wall, and there are times you wonder, why am I bringing children? Why am I fostering these kids? Because it's hard, and it, I struggle day in and day out, and I'm exhausted. Why am I doing this? And if you lose sight of eternity, then there's no purpose. But the moment you put your eyes on eternity, you realize every single day you care for that child. You're doing something for the kingdom. Or maybe you're wondering, why are you going every single week? Because every time you mentor a kid in school and your hour comes to go in the middle of the day to mentor that kid, you're going, why did I say yes to this? 
stinking Jason guilted me into this. I don't want to be mentoring a kid. I ain't got, got time for this. And when it feels terribly inconvenient in the present, when you put your eyes on eternity and you realize you're making an eternal difference and you're storing up treasure in heaven, all of a sudden it feels good to do what you're doing. He's saying, look at all your life and see what you're leveraging it toward. I think right now what we're seeing is Jesus telling us the true blessed state is to leverage everything for an eternity you can only receive by faith. And to do less is to lose, not gain. Jesus taught us what Jim Elliott said later. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus didn't just talk the talk. He didn't just teach us these principles. Jesus walked the walk. Jesus showed us what it looks like to leverage everything for eternity. I mean, and if you, I hope you go back and read the four Gospels. Just look at the way he lived. There were all these things he could have leveraged for his own gain in this life. He could have been famous, but he walked away from it. Go read Mark 1.38. He could have been the king, and he walked away from it. Go look at John chapter 6 after he fed the 5,000, how he slipped away after they tried to make him king. He could have had power and money. He could have had everything he wanted in this world. He walked away from every single bit of it. I mean, he could have had the simple things like just safety, just life, and he wasn't even willing to hold on to that. I mean, the, the clearest picture of what it looks like to leverage everything for eternity is the cross of Jesus Christ. And you do know, I hope you know this, Jesus wasn't crucified by people who conquered him. He wasn't like a trapped bird that was killed. He, he wasn't a trapped animal. He didn't get confused and, and accidentally walk into Jerusalem and get crucified. He chose to go there to give up his life because he was leveraging everything for eternity. I want to finish with this one passage. It's in Luke 18. And it shows us what he's thinking as he's on his way to Jerusalem, the very place he's going to be crucified. I want you to see he knew exactly what he was doing when he went to that city. Luke 18, verse 31 says, And, and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. So he says, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. Let me go ahead and tell you, I know exactly what's going to happen. They're going to mock me. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me, and then they're going to kill me. That's what's awaiting for me in Jerusalem, and yet I still go. That's what it looks like to leverage everything for eternity. But he was no fool. The reason he leveraged everything is because he knew at the very end of it what would happen. It says, and on the third day, he will rise. He knew this would not be the end of his story. He was wagering everything on his father who would raise him up from the dead. And he says, I'm willing to pay it all because, God, I know you're good for it. He knew what Paul would tell us later in Philippians chapter 2, that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow on heaven above, the earth below, and the waters beneath, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. He knew it would be worth it. And so he says, I'm willing to pay this price right now. And he's asking us to look at that example and say, as you did, Lord, so will I. Listen, right now, every bit of you is saying, I need to get for this life right now. I have needs in this life right now, and I want to build this up. You want to swim this way, because it looks like the shore is over there, and this is the best way to get it. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I want you to swim this direction. I know it doesn't make sense. I want you to leverage everything for eternity. You're just going to have to trust me. It's going to be worth it. And the question is, who are we going to believe? The world that wants to take from us 
or our Savior who bled and died for us. Jesus says, here's my example, follow me. Listen, in a moment, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. And when we take the Lord's Supper, this is the time, I know it every single week, I can see it. You start to tune out. You go into autopilot. All right, I don't have to listen anymore. I made it through the sermon. Praise God. Now I can just autopilot till he sends us out. Please don't do that. You can eat and drink judgment upon yourself right now this morning if you take the Lord's Supper lightly. There are two things we are doing when we take the Lord's Supper this morning. The first thing is we are seeing a vivid picture of what it looks like to leverage everything for eternity. The piece of bread symbolizes the body of Christ, the cup, the blood of Jesus. It literally meant to give up absolutely everything, his own body and blood for the sake of eternity. We're getting a vivid picture of the teaching this morning. But the second thing we're doing, don't miss this. We're also saying, Jesus, as you did, so do I, because I belong to you. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, and it doesn't matter if you're doing this in your home or you're in a church building, every time we take the Lord's Supper, We are saying, Jesus, I belong to you. I identify with you. I'm proclaiming your death until you return. And I'm saying when I take the Lord's Supper that I trust in your ways, and if you did it, so will I. That's a scary thing to say. And you might want to examine your heart before you take the Lord's Supper. So here's what I want you to do. During this next song, I want you to actually do an audit on how you spend your time. And listen, don't don't compare yourself to somebody else that you know is worse than you are in your faith. You can all find that neighbor who's just a crumb bomb, doesn't do anything, you know, like, I'm way better than him. Compare yourself to Jesus. Because even if you give away 90% of your income and live off 10%, you still don't equal Jesus, who gave everything for our sake and for eternity. When you compare yourself to Jesus, all of a sudden you realize, holy moly, I got some things in my heart that aren't right. And maybe you might need to repent Maybe you might need to say, forgive me for that, God. I want to give my time towards your causes, God. I want to give my my abilities towards your causes, God. I want to give my money, my possessions towards your causes, God. Help me believe in you that it's going to be worth it. Maybe some of you are struggling with your obedience, right? You're getting tired of obeying. And today you need to say, God, help me remember why I'm doing what you've called me to do. I trust you, God. We're going to sing a song that says, I give myself away. And that, that song is saying, God, I'm declaring to you that this life of mine belongs to you and I give it away. I want it to be used for kingdom purposes, God. But before we sing it though, I, I gotta say this, there are some of you in this room and you have yet to trust Christ with everything. There is one thing you have not yet leveraged for those of you watching online. Could be that you've yet to give your soul to King Jesus. It, maybe you've held that back, you're learning more about him, you're inquisitive, You want to find out, maybe you stumbled upon the kingdom of God, but there must come a moment when you say, Jesus, I'm wagering everything on you, all my chips on you. I give you my life. Come in, take over, forgive me my sin, rule in my life. That's leveraging everything for eternity. And if you haven't done that, then this morning may be the time that you need to do it. Listen, let me tell you how you do it. You can do it by singing the next song. When you say, I give myself away, you are saying to Jesus, I give my life to you. In fact, there's a a part of the song that says, take my heart Take my life as a living sacrifice. All my dreams, all my plans, Lord, I place them in your hands. And if you are saying today, Jesus, I'm ready to trust you with my life, with everything, you may sing that as your declaration of faith. And we'll tell you what to do when the service is over. But right now, respond in faith. So I want you all to stand, if you will. Let this song be the time that you respond to God. Prepare your hearts. And then I'll lead us as we take the Lord's Supper at the end of the song.